Hi guys, and welcome back to You're On Crackmate, the podcast where we delve into films, television series, and whatever takes our fancy, really, analysing and reviewing them to the point where we've been told flat out, you're on Crackmate. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming back Joseph Hurley. Joseph, how are you getting on? Not too bad, Sean. And the question I have for you straight away, is that intro a kind of practice, or do you have it on a Word document that you read straight off? Oh, I read that so much. Absolutely. <laughs> Just the illusion is shattered, everybody. I do not have this learned off and I do not wing it. And I tell you why is because I think I got to about episode five or something, right? And I was doing the same thing. I was reading it off. That file has, from day one has remained the same. Variety? What's that thing? So I was like, oh, it's grand. I've done this so many times now. I can do it. Hi, everybody. I'm blah, blah. Just right. nothing. For yeah. the next podcast we do then, Sean, you're going to have to close your eyes and you're going to have to recite that from scratch. Absolutely. That's grand. Sean, what's wrong with your camera? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, that's all right. For the next podcast that we do, you will have to close your eyes and recite the film start to finish with no gaps. And I want the actual gaps of the, any silences that are in the film. You must also put that into your uh, recital of the film and I pick the film and I tell you two minutes before the podcast and I think yeah and then I'll do the uh, the intro as well no problem if it's Star Trek Generations unfortunately I can unashamedly admit that I know the thing backwards and I could still probably recite it from scratch you say unfortunately I'm just like damn he's one ahead of me all right <laughs> uh, I was actually do you know what actually do you know what, based on what we were talking about last week um i was I, some night over the weekend or something and i was you know when you're just wired in bed you're like I've, I've done everything i've done breathing exercises i've done meditation everything i cannot fall asleep mm. so what i did is i closed my eyes and i hit play on star trek first contact and i actually got a pretty good amount into the film before i was like oh what happens then uh a pretty where, where did i go they were at least they had arrived in uh montana but I think, I, think I think as well what happens in those kind of situations is you kind of come in and out of sleep and then you'll wake up and you, because you're aware of how much you've watched the movie, the passage of time will kind of, even though it's happened, you'll still be in your head going, no, I actually, I've heard all this straight through. So I haven't actually, you know, fallen asleep for any of this. Like, it's a kind of an odd one. A couple of weeks ago, I fell asleep and I was listening to a podcast, but it, it kind of went into a different podcast and it was Welcome to Night Vale, I think it is. Oh, I know. I've not listened to it all, but I've, I know it, yeah. But I was kind of, I was in and out of sleep and they were kind of telling a horror story of the one of the babysitter where I think she's constantly getting phone calls and then she says, you know, have you checked on the kids and all this kind of thing. But the voice was really creepy and I was kind of in and out of sleep and I was completely panicked because I was convinced this was real. And I was there going, oh, dear God, this is really bizarre. And I kind of got to the point where I did realize it was a podcast I was listening to, but I was so tired, I couldn't turn the damn thing off, so I kept on listening to it. It's like being trapped in a nightmare. It's like, no. Uh, Night terrors with Joseph Hurley. Um, Boy, uh, I had a woman last night where I fell asleep listening to a podcast and then didn't realize that that I had leaned, I have um, some of those hands-free headphones, right? So I leaned on the headphone and had turned all the volume down, which is how I was able to fall asleep. So then today I went to watch a video and it was like, I was turning up the volume on the phone and I was like, you know, reconnecting and it was like, all right, then just turned up the volume on the headphones. Technology is confusing. 
a bit of a rookie error there now for you, Sean. Just a little bit. Yeah, like, you know, Sean, what is it you do? It's like, shush, 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 shush. What I actually like is, can, can you give me the technology from, like, some sort of alternate 1940s? That would be nice. Um, that, was my, that was my really awkward segue. Did that, did that work? Uh, no. Because um, <laughs> I was about to ask you, what movie are we here to discuss today, Sean? <laughs> That don't work now with this Art Deco style, no? <laughs> no, I saw it. I, I kind of saw it coming a mile away, but I said I can't give it to him, no. Oh, damn. Ah, well, I walked into that one. Um, Joseph, what film have you chosen for us this week and why? Um, I picked Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Um, it's one of those films that over the years I've spoken to people about and they're not really kind of aware too much of its existence. It was funny just before I came on the podcast, I was um, on a WhatsApp group and I was being asked about, you know, playing online Apex Legends tonight and I said I was recording this and when the guy said that he'd never even heard of the film um, but he was a big fan of the series. So it's, again, I suppose when you look back at it, it was one of those ones I doubt it would have ever been on TV when we would have been younger or anything like that. Yeah. Like, so the only way we would have gotten it would have been VHS, DVD and things like that. So it's a film that definitely deserves, you know, to actually be watched because of how good it is. And it's something that I kind of felt that would be really kind of good to have a kind of a conversation about. Um, well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It is because it's, it's sort of Batman, the animated series' take on the origin story yeah. for quite a few of the characters, really. Um, but uh, it's the... So, so I remember right back in... I, I did watch this way back when, but obviously I was... I must have been maybe four or five when it came out. So it was more that it was ingrained in me. So I re-watched it again. I think I was 17 when I actively sat down to watch Mask of the Phantasm. And... I mean, you're going to hear, I was blown away quite a lot in a lot of this film because this film is up there, you know, okay, yeah, not budget-wise, but in terms of quality-wise, it's up there with some of the best cinematic offerings of the Batman story. Now, obviously, the Nolan films, they get quite correctly get the acclaim and, you know, get the attention, but Mask of the Phantasm is pretty bloody good. I think as well what kind of helps it is that it doesn't, it's not in the way Batman Begins kind of, you know, starts with Bruce Wayne being young and just kind of brings it up to him being Batman. Like this obviously jumps around because it starts, you know, in current time and then it kind of, you know, goes back. So you've kind of got two storylines going at the same time. Like, it's funny what you were saying about the reviews because I was reading the Empire review of it at the time and like they gave it five stars, like about how good it actually is. Um, like in some of the podcasts I was listening to what I was doing research of it, you know with the exception maybe at the time the way they were reviewing it was each movie in order starting in 1966 like, but they were putting this second only to say batman 1989 in terms of again how good it actually is see movies like this are always kind of a bit strange because you know in an animated movie you can do anything you want really and like it's down to the power really of the voice actor whereby if you're doing a live action film it's down to the performance of the person themselves set pieces that they do and things like that and it's a lot harder to kind of make and then with this is, you know, like you could show it to somebody and they might appreciate it for how good it actually is because it's an animated movie. Again, I'm not being a snob about that. That's just the way it is. Like It is. And you're, you're sorry to speak, but you're dead right. I think so often without any ill feeling in the world, an animated mm -hmm. film gets written off as just a cartoon. Now, I think it's getting less like that as time goes on. I think it's become more established. Sorry, but you're dead right. Yeah, so you know, Mask of the Phantasm is 
<laughs> to say that it's a valid film, again, it's almost speaking of my own prejudices there of film. Ah, it's a valid film. We'll give it to Mask of the Phantasm. But I think it, it comes down to, you know, what you've grown up with as well. Like if you were to, you know, like obviously myself and yourself are Star Trek fans, like like I've, you know, spoken to people about episodes of the original Star Trek series and you know how good they are and the stories they tell and all that. But if you sat someone down and watched them, they look at the cardboard sets, the absolutely horrendous special effects and things like that. And you're kind of saying to them, like, you really have to look beyond that to see how good this actually is. And, you know, you, you're kind of, you do fight a losing battle on that. But again, that's going to be the way it is. If anyone, someone could show you a movie that you've no interest in the genre and it could be brilliant, but you might go, listen, I, this, it just didn't speak to me at all on that level. And like, you know, it's the same kind of with this, like, it's just, it is, you know, the series itself was absolutely brilliant and it consistently holds up. Like I bought the Blu-rays last year and, you know, they started releasing on DVD around 2004, like I think it was kind of a, a set of a few of them, then the season started coming out. And it just, it remains absolutely brilliant, especially the first season um, where a lot of the origin stories were coming out. Like when you look at, say, Mr. Freeze, which was a completely... Oh new origin story because previously he was just a you know frozen guy basically <laughs> but how well it did in terms of making him a kind of a tragic character and things like that and like you know this continues that as well in terms of this time it's taking bruce wayne and like it's a very hard thing to kind of take the character of bruce wayne and kind of try to deconstruct him basically say that you know like we can watch batman we can kind of think he's cool and he's got money he's got gadgets and all that kind of thing and it's brilliant and I've often heard people say, like, there's, you know, not no Batman movie really kind of delves into it hugely in terms of what drives them. Obviously, Batman Begins has done that now. But this did it as well in a kind of a different way, like in terms of it really showed the kind of the tortured soul that he actually is. Like when you consider it, there's really kind of three identities, isn't there? Like there's Batman, obviously, there's the Bruce Wayne, that's the public figure. But the real person is the person who speaks to Alfred when he's down in the Batcave, because that's the only time he can actually be himself. Like every other time he's just acting like, and it's the movie itself really kind of, you know, explain to you why he does what he does. And then this throws in the added thing of him falling in love with somebody that he wasn't expecting. To, and then how that kind of, you know, threw a massive spanner in the works. Like there's, again, look, if you haven't seen this movie before, we're obviously going to ridiculously spoil the movie left, right and center. But like, I think one of the best scenes in it is when he goes to, after he meets Andre and all that kind of thing. And he goes to his parents' uh, grave and he's basically trying to plead with them to let him not go back and you know, take on the city because he's basically there going, I wasn't expecting this to happen. And it's really kind of heartbreaking because they're going, he just wanted to be a normal person. That's all he wanted. And this, you know, vow he made, it's too big for him just to kind of walk away from. And it'll, like, you know, it'll destroy his life because in the end, he'll never, you know, get married, never have kids and never have any of that. He'll always just be kind of on his own and kind of never really be able to be real to anybody. That's so, 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 so much the point of, I think, this film is, and it humanizes him. It, it, it's frightening really particularly that scene where, where he's in front of his parents graves and you know we don't hear their voices but he hears them loud and clear and in his head they are screaming at him you made us a promise you yeah. made us a promise you don't get to walk away from that and it's heartbreaking and it's as i say it's, you know it's it's scary and i think the whole thing of phantasm is legacy of you know you know 
what is expected of us and what we will do for our parents. Yeah, um, exactly. And, this is, yeah. And, and there's a huge contrast in the movie with kind of the bright colors versus the dark colors and the upbeat music versus the not so upbeat music and think that well maybe kind of ominous music would be the best way to kind of describe it like when when you know Bruce Wayne's seeing Andre Beaumont everything is you know the music is you know uplifting and the you know the visuals are brilliant and it's really bright and colorful and then obviously the contrast that then is obviously all the scenes in the Batcave and just you know there's a lot of scenes where Batman's in the rain and things like that and yeah. it's just it kind of shows how kind of isolated his entire world has become and kind of you know when he sees Andre Beaumont coming back to the city you know he's reminded of what he, what he could have had if things hadn't you know kind of worked out differently like that's you kind of I'm, I'm thinking it reminds me very much of because this is while this is not a I was going to say it's not a Joker story per se. Obviously, the Joker plays a very large role in Mask of Phantasm, but for once, he's not the central antagonist. Yeah. Um, but it reminds me of a very famous passage from The Killing Joke, which yeah. is probably the Joker story. And it's, you're only one bad day away from madness. Yeah. And this is almost the negative of that. This is you are only one hand away from salvation. And Andrea could have been that for Bruce Wayne. Yeah, there's a great thing as well in the early part of it when there's a party at, um, at Wayne Manor and Bruce is talking to two of the girls and then one of them comes up to him and she's kind of basically there's two girls they're going, oh, basically, you know, don't, basically don't waste your time on him. He'll tell you that, you know, you're everything in the world to him and then suddenly he gets close to commitment, basically. He's gone kind of thing, like, and all this kind of thing. But it's kind of cool because he plays the playboy then and he looks like he's nice and happy and all that. And again, he's at a bright room and all that. And then when he walks away from it, he goes into a big, dark office and then it's a looming picture of his parents looking down at him and you're immediately in reminded of, like, you know, the person outside is absolutely not who Bruce Wayne is like. And it's interesting that, you know, even small things like, you know, if you remember in the dark night um, when he's at the party and he walks out to the balcony and he just throws his wine over the edge, yeah. I was often wondering, why did you do that? And a friend of mine told me at the time, he said that this is because obviously Batman doesn't drink. And I said, oh my God, that's so bloody obvious. And if you think of, um, have you ever seen, have you ever read The Dark Knight Returns? I have, yeah. Yeah, do you remember at one point Commissioner Gordon is talking to him and he basically says to him, you know, you were basically tricking us for all those years drinking ginger ale. Everyone yep. just thought it was wine, like, and it's, just, it's small little details like that that I always thought were really kind of really cool, especially in these movies, because like there's things you wouldn't pick up on, but then when you see them once, you never you can't unnotice them after that. It's the the animated series particularly was it defined in a way how Batman was portrayed for a long time, which is funny because it in itself was inspired by the Burton films yeah. and the earlier comics as well. I think a lot of Denny O'Neill inspired artwork turns up in the animated series and the animated series then in its own turn spawned stories that come out of it. The complete rewritten origin of Mr. Freeze now seems to be the definitive origin of Mr. Freeze. The character of Harley Quinn, for better or worse, I have seen Birds of Prey. Um, you know, these are these are iconic characters from this. And yet I don't think with a couple of obvious challengers, I I I believe that this is the Joker. 
Yeah, in fairness, it's like as a portrayal, it's very hard to kind of you know look. It's just it's so good how Mark Hamill has done the voice over the years, and he's you know completely insane. Obviously, looking the in the in the cartoon because it was aimed at kids as well. Like he's you know he's much more kind of fun and not as kind of you know watching the world burn kind of thing. Like, but he's really kind of reaching it. But again, it goes back to what you were saying about the show as well. Like Bruce Tim, the creator of it, he said it in an interview years ago when they were making it he wanted to make 20 minute movies like so every episode had to be epic in its own scale so mm. obviously with the joker being brought into it then as well like they had to obviously you know because they were up against say jack nicholson's joker who would have only been about four years previously at the time so you know they had to obviously make it as kind of engaging as say the live action one was at the time like i mean obviously like it goes without saying anyone who has seen any version of this knows Mark Hamill is iconic as the Joker. Mm. But in this one particularly, I know we get a kind of an origin story, well, sort of an origin teaser, if you like, for the Joker in this film. But it's not even about that. Once the Joker turns up, I think it's potentially, with the exception of the Batman Beyond movie, Return of the Joker, I think this is the most evil and gleefully evil we see the Joker, and he's so casually evil in this. The only thing is, now again, look, I, I obviously agree with you. It, the only thing was, is, was he needed in the movie? Because would it have always been better if the, you know, had, like obviously, look, you know, having the Joker in any movie is going to make it even better. The first time I watched it, I do remember as it was going by, and when the Joker came in, I was kind of there going, it's almost like, you know, he's too good of a bad guy to leave out. But I think that could potentially be the end to the detriment of developing other bad characters. Like, say, for instance, you know, when, the, when Batman Begins came out and at the very end was the teaser of the Joker being in the following movie, like, and we're now looking at, you know, Robert Pattinson's Batman coming out. And obviously the question is, well, when is the Joker going to appear in those series? Like, it's almost like he's too good of a bad guy to kind of have in. Like, so again, while I fully agree the Joker is brilliant in this, a party almost wishes that he wasn't in it so that it was totally a different story with a you know, Phantasm being a, you know, a unique um, bad character. Um, and again, as I said, you know, like, even with the joke then being in this thing, you're kind of given a bit more of his background and it's always better with his background being very ambiguous rather than kind of, you know, how fairly obvious it was who he was years previous. Mm. I, not that I'm criticizing the movie, of course. Not not at all. No, because no, it's fine as well. Like, it, uh, this is fun because it's kind of a healthy critique. I think it's kind of... Spoiler, everyone, we love this movie. But that doesn't mean that we can't obviously have a critique or something that might be different. I think I, I might be mashing a few notes together here, but I think the original, original, original genesis for the idea for this film ended up being something that they kind of rejigged for the animated series, which was Two-Face. And when he becomes the judge. Okay. And this this kind of, this this you know, this jewel identity well, triple, I suppose, identity for, for Two-Face. So I think, like, back in the day, they did have different players. Now, I don't think there was an Andrea character in the original idea. I think it was starting with Harvey Dent struggling, and part of him was paying off the other, you know, the gangsters that he had dealt with. Because that is then rejigged into an episode of, I think, the, I think it's the new Batman adventure. So it's the redesign. Yeah. I think by the time it gets to there. And I wonder, because, you know, did the Joker need to be in it is a very valid question who could we swap him out with who works best with the gangsters and I think Two-Face 
Now, I'm being very, very, very biased because, spoiler, Two-Face is my favorite of the Batman's rogue gallery. So, I mean, who works best with the gangsters? Two-Face. Who serves ice cream to children? Two-Face. You know, it's fine. (laughs) Um, What do you think? If you say, let's say we take this wonderful performance and we give it a thing of its own, Grant, would you strip that that side of the story altogether and just keep it keep it tighter keep batman um the phantasm and just the gangsters or do you feel that there's enough in that do you feel that maybe there had to be another character or another threat no i i think if we, like again sometimes like you know like they often say like that sometimes art is kind of done best when you have limitations to it like and you know if they'd removed the Joker from it, it might have forced them to focus more on the gangster element of it. Like, because again, as the story progresses, we find out that the Joker murders Andre Beaumont's father and things like that. Like, that could have just as easily been anyone killing them. Like, and mm. it could have because, like, if you think of um, like the episode of the animated series that uh, dealt with Robin's past and the guy oh. who killed his parents, you know, Robin's reckoning, like Tony Zuko. Like, you know, that didn't, that could have been the Joker. Do you know what I mean? They could have easily put the Joker into that part. But in this situation, it was, it was just Tony Zuko and he was a complete scumbag. And the end is brilliant because, you know, Robin wants to absolutely, you know, beat the guy to death. And Batman is trying to remind him, you know, basically that is not going to bring you any kind of solace from in your life. And in this kind of film, it's kind of a similar thing with the Phantasms obviously killing all the gangsters who basically were responsible for father's death. It could have been just... A kind of you know could have made, could have been a prominent gangster was responsible for it, and we could have had the same kind of situation at the end of it, rather than just kind of the straightforward fistfight between Batman and, and um, Batman and Joker again. Like again, like like if you if you think of it like say sometimes like in a movie it's great when sometimes the climax doesn't involve a fight like that. Like if you look at say the Wrath of Khan, like Kirk and Khan never come face to face. They never physically you know you know have a fight or whatever like that. And the film is better as a result of it. And again, as I said, I'm, I'm not disparaging the fact that Joker's in it. I just think that if they'd taken him out, I don't think that the film would have suffered. I think it would have made them focus more on, say, the crime element to it, which was kind of what, say, maybe 75% of the movie already was. I wonder if... So, Batman the Animated Series didn't pander. And that is one of the best, like, it never, ever, ever pondered, and it never treated its audience as if they were anything other than intelligent. And even when it was very clearly written for, you know, they had younger eyes in mind when they were writing it. I want, because this is the first feature length, say, episode, not including two-parters, if you like. Yeah. Was there an idea that, well, you know, because there is this climactic, you know, the explosions and the the world of tomorrow exhibit all, you know, was there an idea of, oh, I can imagine this on the big screen, you know, yeah. you know, we have to have the big, the big boom and, you know, potentially who's the most cinematic of the villains. Yeah. It's, you know, say probably easily, I'd say probably the Joker. And I wonder if that was it. So we're writing this for the, I mean, Obviously, it was the big screen at the time. It's probably the size of a normal television these days. But, you know, it's this the size of the big screen. I, I, I think if that probably played a part, and to then, I suppose, compliment the film as well, that it does spend so much time building toward that. Yeah. Whereas there are some episodes of, say, the animated series, you know, not all of them are amazing, like any television show. Yeah. Um, 
and some are extended explosions for about 20 minutes and it's kind of like i'm really starting to get bored now guys what you were saying about the background to the film like i was when i was reading up about it like originally it was going to be direct to video and then i think it was eight months before say christmas 93 the studio decided to change it and say actually we're going to put this in the cinema but obviously the animators had made it kind of um looking like a television experience so then they had to basically redo the whole thing and to make it ready for uh, the Christmas period in 1993. Um, so of course, what happened is, you know, Warner Brothers didn't really promote the thing at all. So when it went to the cinema then, it completely bombed as an experience because no one really kind of knew it was out. There was a story, I remember reading that, Mark Hamill went to see it in a theater and there were so little people there, he basically asked that people want to sit with him and actually watch it when he was actually there. Like, So there was kind of, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the cast then as well, like they brought in like a lot of people, like Janice Laney is very kind of, again, if you look her up on IMDb, you know who she is straight away. She's one of those faces that she's in so much, but you might not know her. I was dreaming to see the man who played Arthur Reeves, Hart uh, Bachner. He was, um, he played Ellis in Die Hard. Ellis is the guy with the beard, the shyster who tries to negotiate with the terrorists. I never connected the two. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's Sorry, him. I never connected the two. Yep, there, because I, uh, no, spoiler, I have IMDb up in front of me here. And the there funny thing is. was, then as well, his father in real life actually played the, um, did the voice of Mayor Hamilton Hill on the animated series. You're kidding. I am absolutely not kidding. Talk about keep it in the family. That's that right, is yeah. gas. Mm. Heart, but God, he's, uh, uh, just, no, just funny thing. So for anyone who's kind of listening along and checking IMDb with us, um, Hart Buckner's IMDb headshot. Pretty sure this was taken for Batman Mask of the Phantasm because he looks exactly in this picture. He's a bit more clean shaven, but otherwise he looks exactly as he did in Die Hard. Um, and you know what? Yes. If I looked like that back then, I wouldn't change the picture either. <laughs> the um, like, I think as well with the movie, like it was such a success, especially when it went to video, like in the critical reaction started coming out. Like it set up, you know like the next few Batman movies to come out. Like there was a period there where some of the Batman movies that were animated were absolutely brilliant. Now I, I kind of feel they've died off a bit. They're not as kind of engaging as they were, but like things like the Dark Knight Returns, Year One, uh, Sub-Zero and all that, they're mm. absolutely, they're, um, they're fine movies. I, I I did a bit, actually, I, I had a bit of time there, but over lockdown, didn't we all? Uh, I, I say over lockdown as if it's something that's finished, but I was, I was laid off from my job for a while, so I had time. So I did a bit of a catch up on some of the DC animated stories. And you're right, some of them are fantastic. I mean, I cannot recommend Under the Red Hood enough. Oh yeah, that's um, brilliant, yeah. And, and there are others then that sort of feel like, well, come on, we've got to get our three a year, guys. We've got to get our three a year. Um, and I'm not going to name it because they're all good. I, I don't want to, normally I have no problem naming, but I like, I like this animated series so much. Um, but I, I especially love with all, all the love in the world to Bruce Greenwood, who played a fantastic Batman. And there's been many Batmans along the way. Yeah. Kevin Conroy is Batman. Fight me. Well, he's brilliant, all right. Um, I just as a quick aside, yeah, did you ever hear, I always get his name wrong, Peter Weller. As, oh, because he, he played him in the Dark Knight Returns, the animated. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know he he is excellent. Just he has got the voice for. Does he wake up every morning, take a spoonful of gravel, and decide what will I voice today? <laughs> the voice is brilliant in that film. Uh, like it's amazing. It's two and a half hours when you put it all together. Like, and it's absolutely well worth the watch. Like, yeah, it is the uh, it is the amazing Batman versus Superman that we never got on the big screen ever. 
dear god let's not let's not mention that film but um <laughs> did a good one um one of the things i was interested in was when sometimes you know with some of these movies you know obviously you're tied to time you have to kind of do things pretty quickly like there's a scene in um year one where like it's batman's first night out and he comes across a group of kids you know trying to take a tv out of an apartment like and you know he kind of takes them on but he's so inexperienced like he nearly ends up killing one or two of them like and he's kind of totally in shock at it but he contrasted then to this like the first time you know bruce wayne goes out not in the batman garb like he's just wearing you know a jacket and the balaclava and all that and it's just it's so kind of just straightforward and easy for him now obviously you know like he kind of you know there's an accident with the truck and all that kind of thing but it's just i kind of that one scene i was kind of there going it just seems it's almost too easy for him to kind of do this straight away whereby you know in year one he kind of you know he admits himself like he's there going jesus i'm lucky i'm really lucky that i didn't actually cause someone serious harm in this i think i think i remember the exact scene you're talking about just isn't he kind of i have this picture of him nearly clasping the edges of a sink but i just hear the voiceover going i'm not ready I didn't yeah. do it right. I'm not ready. It was on a kind of like the, oh my word, what's the, the, the evacuation stairs of an apartment. Ah, uh, yeah. Lock. Yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. Um, and it is, and it's having, now I don't know if that's something to do with, because obviously this was written in the 80s, but the movie came out in the last, I think, 10 years. So I don't know if that's something to do with audiences now look for that kind of thing, whereas perhaps they weren't as much attuned to it in 1993, or... Batman Year One was not made for children the, the way that, say, this was. the Phantasm was, even though I would still argue, like, whoa, have a, have, a, have a think before you put this on for children who are too young. Because this one managed to break a few of the very, very hard and fast rules that Batman the Animated Series had to follow. One, it was no smoking, no blood, none, like, and children in danger. None of those could happen in, I mean, explicit danger now. Um, threaten them all you like but no you couldn't have them in explicit danger in the confines of the animated series on television in this there there is blood um, I mean Joker gets a tooth knocked out and I think there's blood down the side of his face that's right um, yeah I think Joker smokes or you know previous he does that's right yeah yeah um, and I'm fairly certain there's a few kids who are probably choked off a cliff no there but there was other rules I remember watching going like you you only made this film because you just like let's channel everything we don't normally get to do into this hour and 20 you know god help the characters in this film i think one of the things as well that really helped at the time was that there was no robin in the movie because there was absolutely nowhere to put robin in as well and i remember reading about the animated series that like the series like even when i was younger i remember kind of feeling that robin was fairly shoehorned into it and i was there going oh man but it was the as usual which never produced that I think I read that you know Robin's in a couple of episodes and then the never producer they're going hey look he's testing really well with whatever age demographic get into the series more and things like that and you know this film absolutely would not have you know suited having him in it at all it would even the scenes of say contemporary Batman it wouldn't at all younger Batman not at all he wouldn't be ready for a sidekick um but yeah, even the, the more experienced Batman that we see, you know, um, going up, if you like, against Phantasm, he's still too early on in his career. It's funny you should mention, because I, I do agree, there are certain times where you're just like, oh, Robin, shut up, will you, in the series. 
it's still probably the best version of Robin I think we've got. I think he's a very difficult character to make properly engaging, which I don't feel about Nightwing. No, yeah, Nightwing is, is much more of a developed kind of character. Like, But I think if you're looking at it, like you mentioned Under, under the Red Hood, mm. like if you look at Jason Todd in that, like, you know, when it has the flashbacks, like, and he's completely, you know, not level-headed at all. Like when it shows the scene where I think it's, they catch up to the drug dealer like and he's absolutely wailing on on the guy like that is an interesting dynamic because we're used to dick grayson being robin and him just following along with whatever batman says like and in the batman animated series you just make funny observations or things like that but when you had the jason todd one in there and like he's just very much kind of he can't control his anger it's a much better dynamic to have like i'd be i'd have loved to have seen say there's animated series with the jason todd um, kind of from that movie being as the sidekick to Batman because again it's all about dynamics really like if you've got two people who are the exact same there's no kind of tension there and at least with Jason Todd you would have that I yeah you, you, you're, because the, the various Robins have been in some way or another different shades of aspects of Batman none of them add up to the whole and that's fine they're not meant to um, like Dick Grayson loses is you know orphaned through crime and yet doesn't sink to the darkness like yeah. batman does uh when tim drake again orphaned through crime seriously don't live in gotham guys um but doesn't doesn't really lose he's still somewhat innocent even though he's still very much a crime fighter and he's a vigilante and you know he's he wasn't hired by batman for nothing yeah but he still you know manages to be a kid somewhat Jason Todd was a punk when Batman met him. And that was part of Batman's thinking at the time. And as you're right, he, he might've been wearing the right colors, mm. but it didn't make him a good guy because you're right. That scene in particular, it's, I mean, you're watching this animation. You're not supposed to scream when you're watching animation, but when he brings his elbow down on that guy's collarbone, Oh my God. And Batman, Batman says, like, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, well, he was a drug dealing pimp. He went into shock, Jason. Like, <laughs> we were meant to interrogate him. He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's probably not the best idea. No, not really. No. For, for a movie like this as well, like, you know, it's very much, again, you're kind of, obviously, caught for time. You can't go into too much kind of, you know, delve into too much detail. Like, but I was watching it back. I just, I love in certain the way conclusions are jumped to so very quickly like and some of the stupid decisions made like when at the start of the movie when is it Chucky Saul is it um when his uh car goes off the you know goes out of the car park and it crashes mm -hmm. into the building across the way and Batman just kind of runs along kind of looks out over the edge everyone sees Batman oh my god Batman killed him <laughs> like, what? what's going on here like this is this is just ridiculous like because this isn't like this isn't Batman year one like Batman is established in Gotham. You know, yeah. Commissioner Gordon is always like, no, there's no way it's him. Shut up. Like, um, and it's very and it's very quick then, you know, when you ran Arthur Reeves is trying to basically get him prosecuted and Jim Gordon's there. Yeah, look, no, that's not happening. Anyway, I'm just going to leave the movie now. So that's the end of that discussion. <laughs> it's like, bye then. Uh, um, the same oh, one. The same thing when later in the movie, when you know, when um, after Andrew Bowman comes back into Gotham and she's at her parents' grave and Batman is there as well, and he's checking out. Um, is it Buzz Bronski or Chucky? Saw no Buzz Bronski, because he's dead in the mm. in the grave as well. And like you know, 
Batman happens to go past his parents' grave, like, and you know, he's looking at it and he can hear Andrea Beaumont then just talking. And like for the world's greatest detective, you know, he kind of basically stands next to his parents' grave, hand on it, looks over, huh? And then your one looks around, and he just runs away. And she just walks over and she's there, looks at the grave, and it's me. Oh my god, it's Bruce Wayne. That's who Batman is. Is it, is, is it really that easy to kind of work out who the man is? It's like in, you know, The Dark Knight Rises. When I'm just thinking of that, yeah. They're going, I saw it in your eyes, you were Batman. All right, then. Come I, on! Like. I think that, because I, I, I always laugh, because I think, is that scene, that little, I saw it in your eyes, is that a nod to all of the times that people really should have cottoned on the fact that Bruce Wayne is Batman? You know what I mean? Like, if things like this, if you're standing there with your hand on Thomas Wayne and Martha Wayne's headstone, looking quite sad, like, well, you know, you're hardly the penguin, are you? <laughs> it kind of like, a lot of stuff, you know, especially when people identify who Batman is and why they do, it reminds me years ago, remember Roger Moore was being asked about playing um, James Bond and they were kind of, you know, why do you play him so, you know, kind of fun and all this kind of thing, he's a ruthless killer. And Roger Moore said, you know, I'm supposed to be playing the guy who's the greatest spy in the whole wide world, yet if he walks into any hotel in the whole, in anywhere on the planet, they immediately go, oh, hello, Mr. Bond, your regular room, is this? And it's just, it's so funny, because, you know, in certain stages, you know, in a movie, you know, there's obviously this collection, right, this person has to work out that X, Y, or Z is Batman. How are we going to do it? And like in this one, it was kind of, okay, what happened at his parents' grave? He look over to see Andre Bowman and then just gasp and then run away. And she'll see the grave and work out the same. Like, if you're in the writer's room having that discussion, someone's bound to have said, look, lads, for God's sake, that's completely nonsense and it's ridiculous. And you put it in the movie, you're going, oh, look, whatever, it's fine. I'll, dis- I'll dispel my sense of belief about this. Like, I think, because this is in the, the comic now as well, but there's, you know, a, a climactic <laughs> fight he has where someone gets to remove his cowl. I mean, like, they, you can't hide away from that, you know, you Something like that, as opposed to like, I don't know, wearing a badge that says Bruce on it. You know, it's a bit like, oh dear, oh well, now you know. And there's the same then in the scene when he's um, when he's in the abandoned construction site, which again is a total rip from year one. And you know, he takes off the cowl to you know trick the police, like, and then he just basically runs into a back alley, which is in the middle of the feckin' day. Mm-hmm. And mysteriously enough, there's no cops, of course, on that one section of the building. And Andrea Bowman just pulls up in her car. We're no cops there, of course. He just jumps in and drive off. Wow, that car is driving away from this crime scene really fast. <laughs> but let's look down this road. It's completely unrelated to what's going on here. Absolutely no chance there's any connection at all. I, I like Considering how enjoyable a lot of the cops in, say, the animated Batman is, particularly Bullock is his grumpy and great. Uh, Renee Montoya, she's not in this now, but as an animated cop, she's very, very good. And of course, Gordon himself. You know, they're really bad at their jobs. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for Batman, Gotham City would have been overrun decades ago. But see, I think as well, this goes back to when we were saying about the Joker being in the film. Like, you know, when you look at the animated series, the roles that Montoya plays, Bullock and Commissioner Gordon plays, like Gordon's in two scenes. And like, I think the second scene, his last scene is when he says to um, Arthur Reeves, listen, it's not the Batman. Anyway, I'm gone. Bye. And you're kind of thinking again, if they take it out, you could have made it kind of more of a kind of a, of a mystery, like, or you know, could have had him, you know, engage with the police more and things like that. Um, again, not a criticism. It's just, it's kind of peculiar that, you know, they 
pushed him out to the side for a movie like this when they could have had kind of more of him because like at that point even if you look at the the actual movies at the time like batman and batman returns like commissioner gordon is absolutely not a character in those movies whatsoever not at all yeah exactly yeah all love to pat hingle no not at all. Uh, not that he was a bad Gordon, but he just wasn't a Gordon. You know, we, we didn't get a chance to get to know the character. Um, love Gary Oldman as Gordon because we got to spend time with him. Yeah, exactly. Know? Yeah, but um, I think as well, what's kind of what's always cool about the Batman the animated series and the movies, and you see it or the movie and this movie, and you see it a lot as well. I love the kind of the retro future tech that's in it, yes. like. Like you look at when they go to the to the World's Fair and like, you know, you see the kind of the prototype car that would eventually become the Batmobile and things like that. And it's just really, you know, obviously with the, the style of the animation of it and things like that and how it kind of looks like the World of Tomorrow, obviously it's like modeled on things like the World's Fair mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. Like, and it's just, it's really cool. And just, you know, how all that stuff looks like is obviously... You can look at it and go, this is made in the 1950s or 40s and it would be made, but in, obviously the future tech would feel like it was made currently. There's actually an interesting thing. When I was watching the movie back, um, when they were at the World's Fair, I spotted them looking at something and it's kind of there going, that reminds me of something. So I rounded and I was just staring at it. I was like, what the hell is it? Then I realized it was the exact same thing as uh, one of the engines from one of the pod racers from Star Wars Episode One. Okay. Uh, I can picture it now in my head. Now, I, actually, fair play. I didn't pick up on that. Um, but see, I, I, Sean, I have no life. That's why I pick up on these things, because I can spot it in my <laughs> You were talking to a... Listen, birds of a feather, man. Birds of a feather. Um, and do you think I will not now go back and watch that about 25 times? That is, yeah. See but, if you can spot it and send me on a picture and see. Exactly, yeah, see screenshot it, right. it and you know, kind of high res and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I think what's what's really good about the movie as well is that the love story I think doesn't feel contrite. I think kind of the character of Andrea Bowman is kind of the kind of person that Bruce Wayne would go for because, like, you know, when you meet him at the start, he's kind of decided I'm going to be a crime fighter and that's it. Like, and you know, he meets her and like the final day, she just basically doorsteps and kind of says, you know, you're not going to call me. What's going on here? And then, you know, she uses a jujitsu move on him and things like that. But she's exactly, you know, the kind of person, you know, because it's always going to be hard to create a character for Batman to kind of fall in love with, like, being in a relationship. But, like, you look at Rachel Dawes and the Christopher Nolan ones, like, at least there was a chemistry between Christian Bale and, Jeepers, what's her name? Who played her in, the, in Batman Begins? Uh, oh, um, I was yeah. going to say Rachel Dawes, yes. Um, no, what's her name? Dawson's Creek, Katie Holmes. Yes. And then in the sequel, it was Maggie Gyllenhaal and there was absolutely zero chemistry between the two of them. At there really wasn't. And so that's cool. Like, like, do you know what? It's, it wasn't that she, either of them were poor in the roles. It was just, you know, there was just nothing between them. And of course, because the character had to exist, you know, what, what do you do? You kind of you're gonna suck it up and you go with it. But yeah, like, uh, who, who, who is tantalizing enough for Bruce Wayne to potentially hang up the cowl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, unfortunately, with all love in the body, it wasn't Maggie Gyllenhaal's Rachel Dawes. Sorry. <laughs> um, but but then, like, again, with a movie like this, you have to really kind of, you know, and especially that's the big thing in it is that they kind of kept, you know, you no matter how much you could see them, you know, spending time together falling in love and all that, you were constantly kind of quickly reminded of, you know, 
in the present time, it's all over. So you're constantly there going, something obviously drastic has to happen, you know, and like even when they're spending time together, like when they leave the World's Fair and that guy is getting, you know, mugged and like Bruce Wayne goes over to try and help out and things like that. You know, you can see, you know, he doesn't really have time for kind of, you know, you can kind of see this obligation, the vow he made to his parents, it still can be an overriding thing. And obviously that sets up a conflict within his own character of like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, if I can't, I can only do one or the other, like, and like, you know, after she, you know, leaves and she heads off with her father, like it's, you know, the scene where he puts on the Batman outfit for the first time, like, you know, when we see it, it's really cool, but in this, it isn't cool at all. It's actually very kind of sad because, you know, Alfred reacts in total shock when he puts on the full thing and, you know, he sees this person that he'd taken from a child and nurtured him and all that basically turn into a complete menace who's going to beat the living God out of, you know, the criminals on the street. But it's kind of sad because, you know, you're looking at it, you're there going, like, his life is goosed as a result of this. And, like, you know, there's no way he's going to be able to kind of, like, once he puts on the cape and cowl, there is no kind of saving him. I don't feel anyway. I think it's done, like, and yeah. even if she came back into his life, the vow he's made now is too strong. I, if she, let, let's say it had been a kind of happy ending, but the happy ending for this Bruce Wayne, who is Batman, would be that Batman and Phantasm work together. That would be, I think, from that point on, once the suit goes on. Um, I, I don't think there is a version of this Batman where Bruce Wayne could not do what he does because he might go a week where they have a happy blissful relationship and then all it will take is a scream yeah you know um and i mean in a way i'm always saying that like it's a bad thing like it's obviously batman does a lot of good Hmm. not necessarily in a good way yeah whereas you know superman obviously is not only will i do good but i'll bake you a pie while i'm doing it you know, um, and that's fine. That's that's the character. Um, this is this is dark. This captures proper darkness, and it does it in such a way that kids are able to watch it and not get too disturbed. A little bit disturbed, but that's okay. Um, again, we, we we contrasted a bit to Batman Begins a few times because obviously that's the contrast he made. But like, at no real point in Batman Begins is there any kind of real kind of sense of this is working out for Bruce Wayne like no point like the entire thing but with this is you know sometimes I think you know the empathy you feel for a character is when there's an element of tragedy to it and there is absolute tragedy throughout this for um for Bruce Wayne like and it's you know it's so it's so well handled and it's so well kind of done it's really kind of you know respectful to the character again you know as I said earlier in the podcast like it's it's a strange thing with the Batman character like it I think at times you can kind of forget how much of a tortured soul he actually really is like. Like I was reading The Long Halloween over Christmas. Oh, what a comic. It's brilliant. Like, and after he gets infected with the fear gas, like, and he starts completely panicking and, you know, the cops corner him at his mother's grave, like, and he's just a complete and utter mess. Like he's a wreck, like, and, you know, you don't really see too much of that. Like, like there was, if I'm right, there was none of that in, say, The Dark Knight even, like, and... Yeah. In like, I remember, say, when you watch, say, you know, um, Batman 1989, it's it's referenced there. In Batman Returns, I don't think there's too much of a reference there. But when you actually look at Batman um, Forever, that's 
terrible as Batman Forever is. There's, I remember, I mean, I was watching the deleted scenes on it because if you remember in the in in it, uh, he's constantly remembering the book uh, his father had and he didn't know what it was. And at the end of the movie, he works out it was his father's diary and he wrote in it every day of Bruce's life. But there was a deleted scene in it because obviously, you know, there's a scene in, in it where basically he says, I'm going to basically marry this woman, Chase Meridian, and I give up being Batman. Like, it's completely nonsense. Like, yeah. out of nowhere, he just gives up on it. But there was no kind of scene where he says, I'm going to go back and being Batman. But there is a deleted scene where it actually has it. And it actually adds more weight to the whole movie. Like, when I saw it, I was there going, how the hell was that left out? Because that's actually really important. But what makes a good Batman movie, obviously, is, you know, when you really delve into the life of, of actually who Bruce Wayne is like. Like, you can have a really good Batman movie, but to make a really good movie, I think, obviously, I'm not a filmmaker, I'm not Christopher Nolan, but it's just, I just always feel the character of Bruce Wayne sidetracked, by and large, and I just feel that this film absolutely didn't do that, and if anything, it put him to the fore. I, because... Now, I know this is obviously, this is 1993, so this is obviously 27 years ago now. I th- what was Batman, about 50 in terms of, say, the history of the character? I think, was it 40? Oh, God, I shouldn't get this wrong, but it was early 1940s. So was it 41? I think he made his first appearance. Oh, or thereabouts, yeah. I think, yeah, because Superman was 39. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we fairly knew who Batman was, but you can be a symbol like Batman is but there is always the man behind the symbol and when you can make the man interesting yeah, I think you have a strong character because in a lot of stories Batman is not so much a character as he is a plot along yeah, or you know he's obviously not a deus machina it's a Batman story but um, you know oh crap Batman's here well I guess we're all going home good show good show um, good show show sorry Sorry. Um, Please don't do that again. I shan't. I shan't. Uh, that's grand. It'll now be the uh, intro to this episode. Um, <laughs> and this, it, it makes Batman, who is the greatest symbol of strength and fear, it makes him fallible. Yeah. And that, to me, where I am in my life now, but also generally, that is a more interesting story than, oh, he's here to beat up the bad guys. Yeah, I think when you're younger as well, like you just want to see the kind of the, the action, the adventure and all that. Like I remember when I watched the movie, you know, when I would have been much younger, like just like you said, I wasn't really interested in the parts of Bruce Wayne. I was, I was going to put Batman back on the screen, please. But now that I've gotten older, I, when I was watching this again, every time I went back to the current time with Batman, I was kind of there going, I'm looking forward to when they go back to Bruce Wayne again. And to kind of see that and that kind of, you know, how it all plays out. Like as a movie, it is actually pretty good in terms of like, you're constantly of the opinion that it's Andrew Beaumont's father who's actually, you know, committed all the murders. Like, and like, it's really kind of a good twist end that it turns out that it's actually Andrea herself who's actually doing it. What I was saying a while ago about jumping to conclusions, like again, it's hilarious when it happens. And then it's also hilarious when it doesn't happen because... You know, when the climactic fight is happening between Joker and Andre Beaumont and Batman, like Batman's basically talking to her clear as day that he knows who she is. Hmm. Like Joker's clearly with an earshot, no point as you say, <laughs> I got a second here, what's going on? I think I might know who you are. Like, but that never happens. And I, 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 when I was watching it back, I was kind of there going, like, surely Joker's going to pick up on this at some point. Like, he's going to know who he is. Like, that, that's one thing that I think I like that 
again, I know I'm, I know I'm comparing it to so many different stories, but one thing I really like is that they kind of address that in the dark night when he goes, I don't want to know. It yeah. doesn't, it's not important to me. Like I don't care who puts the mask on. Batman is who I'm dealing with. Yeah. And I think there's, it, it's not explicitly stated here or even in the series. Uh, except there's one episode where someone thinks they've killed Batman and Joker then goes, Oh no. Oh no, 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 no. You don't get to do that. Um, and I think that works really well. I mean, he is dementedly gleeful in this entire exchange. And I think it's because he can see for potentially the first time, Batman really cares about what's going on. Yeah. As in, you know, it matters to him if Andrea yeah. goes boom. Yeah. Um, so what does he do? <laughs> Let's blow the whole place up. Hey, we're all going out. Because like once you jump from the TV to series to a movie or anything like that, like you obviously have to up the stakes and almost you know every way, like the action has to be bigger, the emotion has to be bigger, and things like that. Like, and you can definitely see that in the climax of, of this, as you said, like the Joker having a tooth knocked out of him, like and the actual you know sign of you know blood and all that kind of thing. And then you know the like the kind of strong ending then of you know the phantasm dragging you know Joker. It's, it's into an explosion, if I remember rightly, even though I watched this last week. <laughs> How does it, it, it is a two minute explosion, isn't it? Or what is it exactly? It's, it's sort of it, everything kind of explodes around them. You know, oh, it's like yeah, they're kind yeah. of swallowed up by it. I mean, this is it, like many Batman episodes, like many Batman stories, the laws of physics play no part in the yeah. finale of this story because there's no way they're walking away from that. And yet, you know, um, what, I, what I was love is in this movie is that is like it's just you know it's smoke and the person disappears and it's, it's like you know whenever Batman disappears and things like that, I, mean, I just always think it'd be absolutely brilliant if, if any of these films he just disappears and somebody looks around the corner and there he is walking away, yeah, like <laughs> slowly as well. Oh, they won't look. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, but like in this exactly, like you know, like she's holding Joker and the the kind of fog comes around them. And then they disappear, and you're going, I'm pretty sure the world's greatest detective would find a way to find them if he actually really wanted to. But again, as they're going, reach over and take her by the shoulder. It's like, I'm here. Like, but and again, like, I appreciate then the depth of it at the end, like when Batman is talking to Alfred, and Alfred basically says, You know, she was she was lost a long time ago, like, like she she effectively came back for revenge, and you weren't going to stop that at all. Like, and you know, and then he was kind of there going. Basically, I appreciate that you never went down that road. Like, and again, I think that's one of those things that it's only when you get older and you obviously see a lot more Batman stuff that you really appreciate kind of you know what that line actually means. Because again, you know, there's a line Batman won't ever cross, even though Batman 1989 blew up an entire uh, Axis Chemicals plant with a lot of Joker's henchmen inside there. That is true, and also uh, Batfleck, uh, that warehouse scene. Those those guys are not walking away from that. Like, they're they're dead. Um, and but I think it's so important and not even to to say I, I'm saying to myself not to rag on Batman 89 or Batman v Superman yeah. which are among my least favorite Batman films with great scenes in them for sure oh, Batman, oh, 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 Batman, Batman, Batman 89 does not rank very high for me Batman Returns is number one for me uh, in that era Um then I uh, said, so, now in fairness, then probably 89 forever and the other one. Good Lord. Um, I'm pretty sure that this conversation will end very quickly from here on. <laughs> <laughs> but like, even like, you know, the writer Paul Dini as well, who wrote so much of him, he kind of said that like 
with each of the flashback into Bruce Wayne's life as well, he says, the Batman's love life, is that it had a tendency to get worse when you hope things would get better. And I think that's kind of, again, that's kind of, <laughs> it's brilliant from a point of view of watching it from the storytelling point of view. For Bruce Wayne, it's obviously horrendous, but like, yeah. if it's kind of, you know, when you, every time, like every time I watch it back, you're constantly going, no, it's fine. It's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. And then something goes worse. And then, you know, come back to it again a while later. It's getting better. It gets worse. And it keeps on happening like that. And again, it makes for a great storytelling kind of dynamic. It's, it, it's funny because it, it, you don't see Batman or Bruce Wayne's heart getting broken a lot. No. Um, in either in the various comics. I mean, he's had love interests, of course, but that idea of heartbreak, whereas that's heartbreaking when he just gets the, the, the dear Bruce letter you know, and, you know, he gets the ring back. That's, you know, all right, grand. And then obviously that proceeds into the fantastic scene you spoke about where he puts on the cape and cowl. There was a, um, a good bit of continuity, actually, in the, as I said earlier on, when you first see Bruce Wayne at that party and that uh, he's talking to the women, whatever, and one of the women, women comes up and she's scorned, she throws a thing of, I was reading there, she is actually the same woman who was with him at the opening of the Joker's Wild Casino <laughs> in the episode Joker's Wild. So again, it's kind of cool that they went back and did that because then it could, it, it could show then that like, you know, he does take women out and he just, you know, conveniently forgets their number and things like that. Who are you? Um, I'm Catwoman. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Something Kyle, right? Um, but it's actually because I think Andrea Beaumont for me is comparable in many ways with Selena Kyle, who I would say is the other big love of the Batman animated yeah. his life. Um, I think then number three in terms of Batman in general would be Talia Al Ghul, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, and I thought for a long time that, um, I, uh, Adrian Barbeau, who voices Selena Kyle, I thought she voiced Andrea Beaumont as well. I was like, they sound so similar. Their speech patterns and everything are so similar. Um, And it speaks, I think, to even though there is a much younger Bruce in this, in when he meets Andrea and the hope that he feels when he's with Andrea, I, I do feel there's a lot of no, no, no. Bruce Wayne slash Batman will end up, if he ends up with anyone, will end up with someone who was costumed, will end up with someone who has, you know, problems, and will end up with someone who will potentially kill him. <laughs> I suppose fractured psyches do kind of attract each other. Um, like I, I think they, did they say that in this one as well, that they were kind of basically saying, you know, or geez, was that, in the, was that in the long Halloween where they were kind of saying like, you know, has Batman actually caused more problems for the city by existing and basically almost attracting these kind of people to the city rather than if he wasn't there, would any of these people ever shown up at all? Yeah. And it is, it is a great argument. Like, you know, you turn yourself into a symbol and yeah, I know actually the Nolan films make it, I think, well, certainly the animated series makes it definitely long Halloween. Yeah. I, I think I remember it from that. And also funny enough with vision in uh, Captain America civil war effectively says these words, it's, you know, sort of a cause and effect. It's kind of like escalation. Yeah. You know, if you know that you have to take on the world's greatest detective, then you need the world's greatest supervillain. Yeah. You know, if you're going to take on someone who, you know, by all accounts cannot be killed, you need someone who has never failed to kill someone. 
Mm, exactly, yeah. Um, and who gets caught in the middle? The very city he's trying to protect. So, John, the question then would be is, would you recommend someone watch this movie? One million percent. And I think for the most part, you can, you can watch it in isolation or you could watch it as part of the animated series as a whole. I think it's written in such a way that it can be very much standalone. Yeah. Um, because sometimes I would love to recommend the anime series to everyone as well. But then the fact that there's, you know, four seasons of it, sometimes it's hard to say, oh, I don't know if I want to take this on. Put all that aside, watch Mask of the Phantasm. It is as valid a film as Returns 89, <clears throat> uh, Begins, Dark Knight, you know, elements of Batman v Superman. I say elements because Ben Affleck was very good as Bruce Wayne. Mm. Um, and then the rest of the film happened. You know, it is as good and it is, I, I don't, I hope, touch wood now, I don't think it's overlooked anymore, but I think it was for a long time um, because I think that because the, there's two other animated films as well that sort of are overlooked and it's uh, Sub-Zero and it's Mystery of the Batwoman. Yes. And uh, it's not that they're, I mean, they're not as anywhere near as good as Mask of Fantasy, but they're not bad. Hmm. But it is. It gets lumped in an awful lot. Right, so what I've taken 25 minutes to say is that, yes, I absolutely recommend this film to any Batman fan. Um, frankly, anyone who's looking for a good story. That's Same cool. question. Oh, God, yeah. Like, what you were saying about Batman the Animated Series, like, if you did anything, just watch the first season, because that's where a lot of the characters' kind of origin stories come from so if that's all you limited yourself to that'd be more than enough because the first season is absolutely it's brilliant like when you look at most of the top 10 lists of the best episodes majority of them do come from season one like as a movie again it's down to accessibility and obviously with hbo max eventually arriving here at some point and the fact that if you get the blu-ray box set of the entire animated series of batman you get the you get this movie in with it too like it is it Again, if you can just put aside, if you're kind of saying, Jeff, I've never watched an animated movie, just try and put that to one side and just give it a watch. It really is worth it. Like, it's very much a kind of like, it's a sprawling kind of story and it kind of involves really everything that you'd want from a Batman story and what you'd want to kind of see in terms of Bruce Wayne and Batman as well. It's excellent. The voice acting is brilliant. The music is brilliant. The visuals are absolutely excellent. It's definitely a movie you should watch if you haven't had a chance to do it before. And if you have seen it before, watch it again. Yeah, right now. Um, in fact, Joe, just one point that I want to pick up there that I absolutely agree with. Shirley Walker's score for this film is incredible. The opening credits to this film, um, Joe, you probably know this already, but there, there is a fantastic gothic choir singing Shirley Walker's Batman theme. And it's all the producers' names backwards. Thanks, Raph, because that was literally the last point I had to make on the podcast. I said, I'm going to land it on him now, just as we're finishing. So I'm just going to put a big mark there now. Sorry, just two seconds. Here we go. Marked off. Thanks for that, Sean. I that have, is that, I have that back now. Grand. That is absolutely grand. That's what I you get for am. leaving the camera running in your room when you went to the bathroom. So to go, there we go. Take his last point. They're going, I'm going to mark off all these points as I go through. And I said, he won't know this now. I'm going to hit him with this now. And that's oh, fine. It's fine. Please that, continue the point you were making. That is grand, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> no, it is. Shirley Walker, unfortunately, sadly departed now. But her Batman music, her theme for Batman, I, I feel 
a lot of people know it without knowing they know it. Yeah. Because the Batman Amag series was everywhere for a long time. And it's so similar to Danny Elfman's theme, which I think everyone knows. Yeah. I think there is a tribe of people who have never encountered pop culture and televisions or radios at somewhere in the South Pacific that, you know, a plane flew over and heard them collectively humming the Batman theme. Like, that's how well it's known. You know, and this is evocative of that while still being very much its own thing. Yeah. And, yeah, if, if, if you haven't listened to the score, go and listen to it now. But, yeah, that's Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Brilliant discussion, Sean. I'm looking forward to the next uh, movie we discuss where you steal more of my points that I found out about behind-the-scenes stuff. Absolutely. That is grand. Start the old research for it now. <laughs> but in the meantime, that's the end of our episode this week, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Whether you think we're mad for what we've said, think we're stunning and wonderful, or frankly, think we're on crack, let us know. Show once again, thank you so much. If people want to reach out and follow you, which they totally should, where can they find you? I'm just on Twitter at Joseph Hurley. You'll see me probably insulting Sean on Twitter in some shape or form, so you can find me there. That is true. That's when you know it's true love. When the insults start flying, that's when they're like roses, you know? Uh, guys, if you really enjoyed this, please consider following the podcast on the podcast catcher of your choice. If you want to get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Ferrick as well. Please rate and review the podcast if you can. Every word really does go a long way. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a patron over on Patreon forward slash Sean Ferrick. For the same price as a coffee a month, you can get exclusive access to episodes before they air, along with creative input on the episodes we produce. We'll be back next week for another episode of You're On Crack, Mate. One more time. Show, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. You're very welcome. I've been Sean, and you've been awesome.